Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, people talk about God creating things ex nihilo, which basically means God created everything that you can see, every physical thing out of nothing. And what we've had ever since God performed that creative act right back at the very beginning is we've had scientists trying to catch up with what he's done. That's what we've had. And what I mean by scientists trying to catch up, I mean scientists trying to discover exactly what God did. I mean, scientists talk about the Big Bang. And uh, the, the general kind of feeling out there is that you don't have a Big Bang without a Big Banger, all right? Someone to pull the trigger, which is God himself. Everything did come from nothing. I mean, science is heading in the direction of showing that, uh, that there was a definite beginning, there'll be an end to the universe. The second law of thermodynamics kind of leads in that direction. Energy's moving from order to disorder. Uh, listen to what Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg said of the beginning of the universe. And you might go, how does he know that? Uh, well, you need to study physics maybe to find out the answers to that question. But this is what he said about the beginning of the universe. In the beginning, there was an explosion. And all the Christians would say, amen. Yeah, because that's how God created it, everything. There was nothing and then there was everything created. Not an explosion like those familiar on earth, starting from definite centre and spreading out to engulf more and more of the circuit circumambient air but an explosion which occurred simultaneously everywhere filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other this is much hotter than in the center of even the hottest star so hot in fact that none of the components of ordinary matter molecules or atoms or even the nuclei of atoms could have held together this is a scientist trying to get a handle on what god did when he actually started the universe when he created matter bill bryson uh, wrote a book called A Short History of Nearly Everything, a popular science book. He said this, In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavenly dimensions, space beyond conception. The first lively second, a second that many cosmologists will devote careers to shaving into ever finer wafers, produces gravity and the other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million billion miles across and growing fast. There is a lot of heat now, 10 billion degrees of it, enough to begin the nu nuclear reactions that create the lighter elements, principally hydrogen and helium with a dash about one atom in a hundred million of lithium. In three minutes, 98% of all the matter that is or ever will be has been produced. We have a universe. It's beautiful too, and it was all done in about the time it takes to make a sandwich. Are they exactly right? Probably not. I mean, are they onto something? Do they know stuff about what's going on? Probably. I mean, the nature of science is that it's a growing, building uh, concern. And I'm not a scientist, so don't take any of my word for it. But just hear from me that you've got these scientists, these, people, these authors of books, just trying to grapple with what actually happened in the very beginning with the creation of the universe. How big is the universe? Well, no one really seems to know. <laughs> Exactly. Dr. Paul Francis from the ANU suggests that the edge of the observable universe is about 46.5 billion light years from Earth. So you think about light travel travelling at 300,000, roughly 300,000 kilometres a second in a vacuum and a little bit slower in air. Think about how far away the edge of the universe is from Earth if it's 46.5 billion light years away. Now think about the, the power required to make something like that, like that. 
It's incredible, isn't it? Think about the wisdom wrapped up in this creation, the built-in information. Listen to this uh, quote from Stephen Meyer. He's a guy, uh, he's part of the intelligent design movement. He said, imagine trying to generate even a simple book by throwing Scrabble letters onto the floor. Or imagine closing your eyes and picking Scrabble letters out of a bag. Are you going to produce Hamlet in anything like the time of the known universe? I mean, he's a, I think he's an old earther by, by the shape of this quote. Even a simple protein molecule or the gene to build that molecule is so rich in information that the entire time since the Big Bang would not give you, as my colleague Bill Dembski likes to say, the probabilistic resources you would need to generate that molecule by change. Consider what you'd need for a protein molecule to form by chance. First, you need the right bonds between the amino acids. Second, amino acids come in right-handed and left-handed versions, and you've got to get only left-handed ones. Third, the amino acids must link up in a specified sequence, like letters in a sentence. Run the odds of these things falling into place on their own, and you find that the probabilities of forming a rather short functional protein at random would be one chance in 100,000 trillion, 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 trillion. That's a 10 with 125 zeros after it. And that would only be one protein molecule. A minimally complex cell would need between 300 and 500 protein molecules. Plus, all this would have to be accomplished in a mere 100 million years, which is the approximate window of time between the Earth cooling and the first microfossils we've found. <laughs> There's wisdom in that, right? I mean, the first bit that I was talking about was the power that's involved in creating something like that so quickly. The second thing that I'm really wanting you to see here is just the incredible wisdom of information that God's built into the things that we see. I mean, cells are not just blobs of plasticine. They're very, very complex. Let me push even a little bit further from uh, a quote from uh, Franklin Harold, who's a biochemist. Uh, he makes these comments about uh, the cell. Think about the detail here. So we're going power, wisdom and detail. A single cell is a high-tech factory with artificial languages and their decoding systems, memory banks for information storage and retrieval, elegant control systems regulating the automated assembly of parts and components, error, fail-safe and proofreading devices utilised for quality control, assembly processes involving the principle of prefabrication and modular construction, and a capacity not equaled in any of our, most, our own most advanced machines, for it would be capable of replicating its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. Do you get my point here? Like some of you go, oh, that's, that's, uh, I don't even understand what he's talking about. All right, just hear this. It's ridiculous. The amount of power that God has to create everything from nothing, almost in a split second, the wisdom to code things in creation, to actually be able to build things, and then the fine attention to detail to make a cell that's basically a little machine, a very complex machine which we can't even replicate. It's incredible, right? Is anyone with me? absolutely incredible and I want to say this to you Jesus did that he did that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God it's speaking of Jesus and the word was God he was in the beginning with God listen to this all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made you see in creation what you actually see is a mere shadow of the character 
of God. Romans 1, 19 to 20 says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So when you look at creation, what do you see about God? When I was over in the States just recently, I stopped for a moment and I looked at a house and behind the house were uh, these beautiful trees. And God and us build stuff, but the stuff that we build is nothing like what he builds. Because what I could see there were two things that had been built. I mean, in, in uh, Cleveland, that probably right now, like 90% of their trees are deciduous. So they turn red and yellow and they, just, they were just starting to go. And it's just like, that is just amazing. It's, it's, it's incredible what you've made. And you look at a house and you look at a bunch of trees behind a house and I go, well, that's incredible. The intelligence and the power behind that the skill in creating a tree is so far in excess of what we can do. I mean, let's be honest about it. Humans are not particularly creative. Even the most creative humans, you know what they do? They just rearrange creation. If being creative is being creative the way that God is, no one else is creative like God is because he makes out of nothing. He makes out of absolutely nothing. So who is this? God, who is this God that creation is a mere shadow of? Well, he's the three in one. He's the Trinity. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, uh, God says, let us make man in our image. Who's, who's the our? Well, it's God himself. They're all kind of together in this thing. They're, they're a team. They're a team. But not just a team. They're a team that actually serves one another. You see, the creative God at heart is a servant. See, before anything was created, before any physical thing was created, there was this community of persons who just lived for one another and they still do, all serving and focusing on the other. This is from uh, Tim Keller. Each of the divine persons centres upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. Notice the root of our word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or flow around. See, this, this, is, the, this is the energy. If I, I don't want to bring any kind of insult to the Trinity, but this is the energy at the centre of everything. This is the life that's at the centre of everything is this... Father, Son and Holy Spirit who continually serve one another. Plantinga says this, The Father, Son and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the centre of the universe, self-giving love is a dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. I mean, think about that. The central reality in the whole universe is self-giving love. That's why it always wins. Even when it looks like it loses, it still wins because that's what's at the centre. See, selfishness in the end doesn't win. It won't win. Good always overcomes evil. Love always overcomes hate. It always does, because that's what's at the middle of the universe. Do you get that? And that's why you can be so confident. It's like, oh, I don't want to love someone or be unselfish because I'll be a doormat. And you just go, no, you won't be a doormat because what's at the centre of everything before anything physical was ever created was this selfless, self-giving 
loving community of persons. The persons within God exalt communion with and defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbours the others at the centre of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. God is an ever-giving God. Incredible, right? I just dial back a few minutes with me and think about where we started. You think about the power, the power of God. You think about the wisdom of God. You think about the, the fine, detailed ability of God. And he's a servant. I mean, some of you should be going, why? 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 Why would he be a servant? Because he is. <laughs> he just is. He's an unselfish servant. And do you know what? God takes this servant thing and just blows our minds with it. You know why? Because he gets incarnated in the person of Christ. Like, that is incredible. <laughs> Dial back to the big bangs. I like get thinking about that and just go, what? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is Luke 1. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing to wonder. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. What would it be like for God, who's non-physical, to actually write himself into his story? What would it be like to have this amazing, incredibly massive, wise, fine detailed God actually say, I want to take on human skin? Like that's a head spinner, isn't it? Is anyone's head, head spinning? Like sometimes you can be in the church long enough, and some of you prob probably like this, and this is what it is for me too. You be in the church long enough, you go, yeah, I know, Jesus became a man. <laughs> like just stop and think about that, like he became a man. Like you go up in a plane and you can't even see people when you're in a plane, you can't see them. And he became one of those. Like, like the, the other side of the universe is 46.5 billion light years away and he decided that he would become like me, like you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Did you ever think, when you're a child, what fun it would be if your toys could come to life. This is obviously pre-toy story, because um, I think most people have. Or suppose you could really have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real little man. It would have involved turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like it. He's not interested in flesh. All he sees is that the tin is being spoiled. He thinks you're killing him. He'll do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. You know, I think what Lewis is talking about there is our proclivity, our tendency as people to resist the good work that God's doing. And so Lewis has gone to saying, so what, what does God do when humans resist the good work that he's doing? 
or he wants to do in their life? Well, this is what he does. What would you have done about that tin soldier? I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of particular height, with hair of a particular colour, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. Listen to this. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Well, you just think for a moment, how amazing is the service of Jesus to you? That he would become like you. I mean, Hebrews talks about how uh, Jesus was made like us in every respect. And the result of that is like we can go to God for grace and mercy and help when we need help because he was made just like us. He knows what it's like for us. But Jesus goes even further than that in serving us, doesn't he? He actually serves by being incarnated. We see this in Philippians 2, 5 to 7. He was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, he comes in with this attitude practically to serve humanity, right? And you just go, hopefully, if you get that properly, you're off balance a little bit, all right? You're just going, what? What? I mean, have any of you ever had that thought where you just go, why doesn't God just do stuff through shock and awe? Like just, seriously, he could just beam himself across all the television networks at six o'clock on a midweek night and just kind of talk to everyone, just kind of do the shock and awe thing. And do you know what I want to say to you? Is that's just not God's style. It's not the way that God goes about doing things. God goes about doing things like a servant. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. When you think about, um, some of you might have heard this, but some of the 12 apostles down in the great Australian bite are falling over. Why are they falling over? Just from the constant erosion coming from the waves. See, that's more like the way that God does stuff. It's kind of an undercurrent, a persistent undercurrent that doesn't seem to go away. It doesn't come in as the as the Jews expected, as a military general, that's going to give everyone their comeuppance. He comes in as a servant under the cover of darkness, in a sense, and starts this movement that now is the largest religious movement in the, in the world. And how did all of that happen? He came in as a servant. He came in as a servant. And we see him doing ridiculously servant-like things. John 13, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's a pretty low job. Especially when you think the main vehicles back then were animals. (laughs) And people wore sandals. So when you're talking about toe jam, you're not just talking about toe jam, right? At that point. You with me? And what's he doing? I mean, you've got to get this. You've got to get that. He is the one. He is the one who brought about the Big Bang. It's the person of Christ that did that, that created everything out of nothing in the very beginning. He's on his knees. He's got a towel tied around his waist and he's got his fingers between the toes of people who are probably out pooing him. 
from animals, or manure from animals. Do you get that? Like it's just weird, right? You just go, what are you doing? And you can kind of understand Peter's kind of resistance to it a bit. He goes, not me. <laughs> You're not doing that to me. It's, it's weird. It's, it's jarring. It, it ought to just kind of catch a little bit off balance. But that's his MO, isn't it? His mode of operation. That's the way he rolls. And why is it the, the way he rolls? Why is it the way that Jesus rolls when he's on earth? Because it's the way he's always rolled. <laughs> Forever. Before earth was created, before anything was ever created, that was the way he rolled. He rolled by being a servant and the spirit rolled by being a servant and the father, they all just served each other and loved each other. So why would you expect anything different when he shows up on earth? He even served us, didn't he, in his death. There's a lot of text there. Hang with me. And James and John, this is from Mark 10, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Does anyone have kids who ever say that? Just want you to say yes to whatever I ask next. All right? Can you just do that? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Which is a really wise kind of parental question, isn't it? You tell me what you want and then I'll let you know. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> he meant to laugh at that point, I think. It's just like, yeah, all right. And Jesus, he's pretty kind. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now that sounds really human, doesn't it? Kind of falling human. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Listen to this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, why is the path to greatness dependent upon serving? That's a really simple answer. Because the greatest one does that all the time. It's like really simple. All right? It's like, why would it be anything else? Why would it be like being the hero and like standing up and lording it over people and exercising power over people when he's the one that actually comes and serves? And listen to this. I've left out the last verse in this discourse. Here's the last verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's it, right? That is a preposterous statement. That is a ridiculous statement. That the God of everything, who created everything in a moment, would actually not come to be served. Is anyone with me? Like, there's part of me that wants to go, what the hell? Like, what, what is that? If anyone deserves to be served, it's him. But what's he doing? He's showing up and he's showing up with a serving posture and he's committed to serving and he, he performed acts of service the whole way through his life and his death on a cross was an act of service. Now, what's really interesting about this, and we're going to get to this later on, 
is the word, the Greek word there, which is what the New Testament was originally written in. For every, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Greek word for serve there actually means deacon. All right, that's it's from a group of words called deacon. We're going to get back to that. But it gets even better than this. Check this out in Luke 12, 35 to 37. Jesus is saying, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. What it's talking about is be ready for when Jesus comes back again. All right, because he's coming back. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Those who are ready for Jesus to come back when he comes back. Blessed are they. Listen to this. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself, who's it talking about? Jesus, for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. It's like, what the? Is that not enough? Is, that not, is it just not enough that you die on a cross and that be the ultimate act of service? You're going to keep doing it through the rest of eternity. You're going to keep serving us. You see that? It's like, that's the weirdest thing. It's like someone comes back to pick up his people it's like wouldn't that be the time where we're just going we just want to serve you and you can just kick back in an armchair and we'll just bring you drinks and stuff and you'll be really happy and God's going no at that time when I come and I rescue you that's when I'm going to serve you now that doesn't make a lot of sense to me in one sense in another sense it makes all kind of sense to me because that's that's who he is that's just what he's like he's, he's just that kind of God that's his character so again we come back to the pathway to greatness the pathway to greatness is servanthood it's service whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted Jesus said in Matthew 23 See, the desire to be great without serving is not a very human thing to do. It's just not. And Jesus is the true human. What's he doing? He is great by his act of service. And what I want to talk about just for the last little bit today is uh, we want to um, set up a deacon ministry in the church. All right, and I just want to talk about that for a bit. And you know, the, the word deacon is actually mentioned about, or, or words related, the Greek word deacon or, or words related to that uh, in the New Testament show up about 100 times. All right? And, and the, most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, it's just talking about acts of service. That's what it's talking about. But come with me to uh, Acts 6, 1 to 7. If you've got a Bible, you can look at it there. It might be a little bit easier to read. Acts 6, it's going to read verse 1 to 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmesan, no, I'm kidding, (laughs) and Nicholas, a a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, before we read on, let me just make a couple of comments about that. Traditionally, people have actually linked the establishment or the existence of deacons' ministries with this text out of Acts chapter 6, all right? Now, it looks like a precursor to the deacons' ministry being set up, but it's not a definitive kind of example of it, partly because they never get called deacons there. And if you actually have a look at the text there, um, go to the end of verse 2 there, it talks about serving tables... And then verse 4, it talks about the uh, apostles being devoted to the ministry of the word. Both of the Greek words behind serve in verse 2 and ministry of the word in verse 4, both are connected to the deacon's original kind of Greek word. They're kind of one of the, uh, one of the Greek words that has to do with deacons, all right? So really what it's actually saying is there's, there's two groups of people here, one of them that serves people by uh, the ministry of the word and the other group that serves people by practical needs, all right? So if you wanted to put it this way, um, what, what the apostles are setting up here is, um, is a group of people that are going to look after adorning the gospel, adorning the gospel with beautiful deeds to actually make sure people are being looked after whilst the other people can get on doing what God's called them to do. Does that make sense? And the big thing out of this scripture to notice here is that there's a division in process. Can you see that? There's people in the church unhappy with each other and people in the church have gone to the, uh, the, the leaders of the church and, and it's like the leaders are going, we just can't do any more. We can't do any more than what we're doing because if we start doing that, we're going to stop doing this thing over here and that's really important that we keep doing that. Okay? And to be really transparent with you, we've felt that this year. People have come up to us this year, to the elders, and kind of said, we think that it'd be really good to do all these things. All right? And I just want to say to you, I just, just leave me out of it. I want to affirm to you, the elders and the leaders of this church, that they are probably, as a unit, they are the most engaged in ministry church leaders that I've ever seen in all my life in churches. All right? They're up to their necks. All of them are up to their necks in ministering and serving people. So it's been really difficult for us this year sometimes when people have come up to us and said, we want you to go and do this. All right? And it's like, we've just gone, if we go and do that... There's a whole bunch of other things that we need to stop doing to actually do that. And, and one of the things that this, uh, this year has probably shown us as elders is that we just really need some people who are going to serve alongside the elders in a deacon's capacity that will help to land a whole bunch of things so that we can keep leading the church the way that God's called us to lead it. Does that, does that make sense? So and maybe some of you have thought, I wonder why the elders don't do this. You just go, because the elders are just flat out, all right? And I, I would just say to you, you are, you've got awesome elders. And I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking the, about the other four guys. You, you have awesome elders and you should, you wouldn't see it. I get to see the way they operate in the details and I just want to affirm them in front of you and just say, if you could see all the details of the way that they handle stuff, you would be really, really relaxed and at peace and trusting of what they do. All right? But you don't get to see all of that because there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do that's not public information because we want to protect people. Is is everyone with me? It's not because we're being secretive, it's just because we want to protect people and we don't go telling everyone about your stuff. 
if we have to deal with some stuff, okay? We want to love you and want to shepherd you and care for you and help things to go forward. So we've got toward the end of this year and just gone... And we just got to have a close look at this deacons thing again. We kind of had a look at it uh, about three years ago and it was just kind of, there were so many things growing and happening in the project at that point in time. We're going to like blow a fuse if we had a look at that, all right? But it was like, we need to have another close look at this whole thing about deacons because you know what we want to see happen? We want to see this happen. This is the result of getting some people on board to look after some practical needs. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Who'd like to see that? Amen. All right? Amen would like to see that. See, I think uh, for the project here, the elders, there's probably some capacity constraints now. Um, and we just want to be really careful and really wise about how to go forward. So we've been looking at this deacon thing for a little while. See, I don't think there's meant to be competition between the ministry of the word and prayer and deed. I think both of those things are meant to go together. But when you get capacity constraints, that can be a significant problem. I want to go now to uh, 1 Timothy 3. So you can go there in your Bibles. It'd probably be best if you do that, just because the text will be a little small up here. Now let me preface this um, next section by the following. All sorts of people have different ideas about what deacons do, okay? And a large part of the reason why they have different ideas about what deacons do is because the Bible actually isn't explicit, it isn't clear, I don't think, about what deacons do. I mean, it's not even... Acts 6 is probably the closest kind of example that we've got of it, and it's not even really saying that they were deacons. It never calls them deacons in Acts 6. And there's only one passage about the qualifications for deacons, and that's the one in 1 Timothy 3, okay, which is what we're going to have a look at. Um, and so, at the end of the day, what am I saying? If you get to the end of today's service and you just go, I disagree with you, that's okay. You don't have to agree with our position on where we're sitting when it comes to deacons. Like, that's totally okay. And there are different views on it across the whole of the world. But we, we're moving towards something and we think we're pretty close to something that's, um, that we're really comfortable with and uh, something that really uh, kind of fits in with what we see uh, biblically. Just start in verse 1. This... The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he's talking about elders, leaders of the church, he desires a noble task. Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I just want to pull up there just for a moment, okay? You, you, you should actually notice in this passage by this point in time that there's a couple of kind of roles for elders that are kind of embedded in this, in this passage. One of them is, is governing or shepherding or leading the church, okay? It specifically is the role of elders in a church to lead the church, okay? That's never said about deacons, Okay, deacons are never actually 
talked about as though they are people who provide leadership and direction in the church. The, the leadership and direction in a church actually comes from the elders. And this might stir up a whole bunch of controversy for which you can go and talk to Cole later about. Um, but I'm just going to say it. I, our, our view of eldership is, uh, is that the role of elder is reserved for men. And the reason why we think the role of elder is reserved for men is because the structure of God's church, which is God's family, is meant to be mirrored on, God's, on, on your family. And I think that's why, our, um, that's why I think Paul says here in 1 Timothy 3 that you need to be able to run your own family well, men, before you can be considered to be an elder. Because I think the implication is very clear. Like, if you can't run your own family, you shouldn't be put in charge of God's family. Okay? So the bottom line here is that I, we think, as elders, that the role of elder is a fatherly role over the church. Okay? And that it's, this is what we believe. Now, you can disagree with us and stay in the project. All right? Totally okay with that. Except you just have to make sure that you grapple with scriptures. Okay? So it doesn't really count if you go, I don't like it. All right? Because there's a whole bunch of things that God tells me to do that I don't like. But you just have to grapple with some scriptures. Now, am I saying that you, you have to end up at the conclusion that we have if you grapple with scripture? Well, no, I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying grapple with the scriptures, all right? If you come to a different conclusion, that's okay. Or just, I'm just letting you know, all right? That that's kind of the way that we see it, it rolling, is that God's family operates in a similar way to my family. And if I wasn't leading my family well in a submissive, shepherding, pastoral way, you would have good reason to come to the elders and say there's a problem with Peter how on earth can he run God's family if he can't run his own and that would be a good question is, is everyone with me because I don't think you should be I don't think you should be running God's family if you can't run your own family well Cole uh, is free for questions later uh, verse 6 <laughs> they can Cole will come and talk to you about me after that. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Okay, so here's the bottom line. Elders are to oversee or to supervise God's family in a governing kind of way. They also need to be able to teach because part of the role of elders is actually to defend and to teach the apostolic tradition, which is really just teach the Bible and make sure we defend good doctrine. So if someone walks into the project and says, uh, Jesus was a dog, okay? And you just go, that's weird. That would be weird, right? But if someone came in and said, Jesus was a dog, the elders would go, well, you're welcome to come and sit in church, but that's not what we believe and we're not going to give you any kind of position where you can actually stand up and tell people about that because that's not right, Okay? So that's kind of part of the role of elders is to make sure that we've got an idea about what things are true and what things aren't biblically and to defend that, all right? Now, some of you are going to go, does that mean we're getting 600 position papers on a whole bunch of things in the Bible? Um, not this week, <laughs> all right? That will probably be a progressive thing. Uh, I would be more than happy to give you the 45-page kind of elder statement of faith that we kind of hold to as elders. Uh, I've, I've uh, put that out to the leadership community group. I might even put it out on the city so that you can read that if you can't go to sleep at night. 
and, uh, and you can uh, just see, see what we think about stuff. But there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff in the church that's open-handed and a whole bunch of stuff that's closed-handed. Um, the closed-handed stuff we're going to divide over, the open-handed stuff we're not going to divide over. Okay, so is Jesus a dog? Is something we're going to divide over? It's like we're not with you. You can tell whoever you want about that, but not in this church. You can go outside and you can tell other people that. When it all comes down to it, we probably even think uh, that uh, the whole issue about what deacons do, we we just we would say that's an open-handed issue. Okay, that's that's what we would say, and that people can differ with us, and we'll stay united uh, together on that. Let's, um, maybe I should just finish that piece on elders. Basically, the big idea, let me, let me just summarise. We see uh, elders as uh, their role, in a sense, is teaching, which doesn't mean that they all preach. It means they're able to defend um, and, and just work through uh, theological, doctrinal kind of matters and, uh, and governing or shepherding. Um, you can go across to uh, 1 Timothy 5, I think it is, 17, where it talks about, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. So Paul in 1 Timothy 5 kind of says, these, these, it looks like he's saying these are two of the main things, um, but you don't actually have to be a public preacher for an elder to actually be a teacher, if that makes sense. They need to be able to teach and, and keep things tight. So let's go on to the next bit here, uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 13. You doing okay? Yeah. This is the bit about deacons, all right? Here we go. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, Here's a bit of controversy in the next verse, verse 11 there. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's talking about the qualifications for deacons, but it's not actually saying what deacons do which highlights this whole issue again about what are they actually doing. And that's, that's kind of why we end up back at Acts 6 a little bit, I think, because that seems to be the closest thing to, uh, uh, or story to kind of guide us about what uh, deacons are meant to do. The big idea about the Greek word behind deacon is actually the, the idea of table service or someone called a waiter. That's what it is. It's like being a waiter around the place. Uh, some churches are really going to push hard in the direction of saying that deacons in the church are meant to be doing mercy ministries like uh, you saw in uh, Acts chapter 6 and we definitely think that that's part of what deacons ought to be doing but we'll probably just zoom out a little bit more um, and just kind of think that um, deacons are kind of people on the ground who are kind of helping the leadership of the church to just kind of implement stuff on the ground uh, if that makes sense. There was a uh, Nine Marks journal, which is Mark Deaver's church in Capitol Hill uh, Baptist, it is in, in Washington. Um, they kind of made this comment, which I think is, is very, very helpful. Elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. Okay? So the best thing um, I can put to you about what's shaping the way that we're thinking about a deacon ministry going forward is that. 
that, that's just really, really helpful for us. And I, I guess you can see that outworking in Acts chapter 6, where the, the apostles have, are kind of leading the church there. And then they, 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 there's some details being overlooked and some people not being looked after. So we need to get some people in there to help do that, not as a separate kind of breakaway thing in the church, but because we want to see the word and prayer go forward in the church. And to have that go forward, we need... Uh, people being served not just in the word and prayer but we need people being served in deed as well and they're serving them in deed helps the word and the prayer to go forward is that is everyone with me so i'm not far off being done i'm just going to give you some practical um just pointers about where we see deacons sitting in the in the project on the basis of that here's the first one we see deacons as being a service, a group of people who are service-oriented. They've got a service-oriented ministry which adorns the gospel with deeds. Okay? That's, that's what we see. And we see these people as being in really close partnership with uh, the elders. We see deacons in the project as being people who are initiative takers. Okay? So, um, you know, if someone in the project became a deacon... In the, in the project, we would want them to be the kind of person that wouldn't actually be needing to get directives all the time from an elder, but be given an area of responsibility and stay connected to an elder, but actually exercise some initiative in that to make sure things are going well. We see deacons in the project as facilitators of ministry. And this one's a really important one. We see deacons in the project as preservers and defenders, defenders of unity with good administration. So in a moment, I'm going to talk to you about uh, deacon nominations and you're going to have an opportunity to nominate people for uh, being a deacon. But what's really, really important is if you go back to Acts 6, what's happening is a potential division's happening in the church and what have they done? What have the apostles done? They've grabbed some good men and they've said, I want you to go straight into that space and I want you to serve those people really well and dissolve that unity with your good administration and service. Does that make sense? So you don't want someone... Deacons are not about ruling the church or providing spiritual direction in the church. You want someone who's going to be able to partner with the elders, not someone who's going to set up something in competition to the elders. Does that, does that make sense? Like, that would be really weird if you had someone in there. It's like, I think this person's really good. Well, have they got a track record of bringing people who have... where there's a potential division? Have they got a track record of bringing them into unity? Or do they have a track record of making division happen and end up with an us and them kind of mentality. Now, here's the last little controversial bit. We think uh, deacons can be men or women, okay? Now, the reason why I'm just making that point is if you go back to verse 11 in 1 Timothy 3, it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified and slanderers, uh, but sober-minded, faithful uh, in all things, all right? Now, some churches think that deacons should be only men. We don't agree with that. And let me just give you a quick um, view at this point in time. <clears throat> in verse 11 of uh, 1 Timothy 3, that the Greek word behind their wives could actually equally be translated the women. All right? And if you actually go to the NIV version of the Bible, that's how it translates it. It translates it as the women. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it looks... Um, <clears throat> it would be weird in the context of uh, 
the officers of the church to have criteria for deacons' wives so that the deacon qualifies and then not have them for elders' wives. Does that make sense? Like there's no criteria anywhere for the wives of an elder. So it would be weird then to actually bring in criteria for a deacon's wife, okay? So I, I just don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's talking about the women. And then if you go back to um, uh, Romans 16 verse 1, it talks about Phoebe in the early church and says, in the ESV it says Phoebe was a servant of the early church and it looks like she played an official role. If you go to the uh, NIV version of the Bible, it translates Phoebe, a deaconess of the church, okay? So it just looks to us like, um, like deacons can be female. So we're just really happy for a deacon to be male or female. That's the bottom line. I know I've just stirred up a whole bunch of gender kind of hornet's nest this morning. It's, it's, that's why I'm so glad Cole's here. <laughs> and if Cole's busy, you can see scene wherever he is. <laughs> so here's the bottom line. If you... <clears throat> If you disagree with that, and there's likely to be some of you here that, that maybe think deacons should be only men, that's okay. You, you don't have to agree with us to be in the project. I'll just let you know what we think at this point in time. If you've got a, a weighty theological insight that you think would influence the way that we think about things, uh, please come and share that with us gently. Um, and uh, we can uh, have a think about that. Uh, that's, that's just kind of where we're going to sit on it, Okay. Uh, and we're actually really excited, despite the fact that the, the New Testament's not particularly specific about deacons' ministry, we're really excited about getting this up and running in the church in a way that that will actually assist us and help us. So practically what it means for us in the project is this is, this is kind of uh, the way that we, uh, we see deacons kind of rolling in the church here. We, we don't really like the idea of just having a random bunch of deacons that have no they're not kind of tethered to anything in particular they're just kind of deacons in the church we we want to head in the direction of uh, having deacons actually tethered to a particular ministry uh, in the church okay so I want to tether them to a particular ministry in the church they're obviously going to be under all the elders but we also want to connect them with one elder in particular all right so basically what that means is there might let me give you an example uh, there's a whole bunch of practical, administrative, kind of serving kind of ways um, that the music, like worship team in the church, could actually be helped to do what they do. All right. And so, for example, we might have a thank you. We might have a, a deacon uh, of uh, worship and, and music in the church, and their job is just kind of to get in there to support Nathan and his leadership in, in the music ministry to help that go as well as it possibly can go. And he would be, he or she, I should say, would be connected either to Nathan, sorry, not either, he, he or she would be connected to Nathan and the ministry area. Does that make sense? So when you're thinking about people that might be prospective deacons, don't just think about someone who's a nice person, and we have lots of nice people in the project, all right? But think about someone who kind of fits the qualifications that are out there, someone who's good with bringing people together in unity, and someone who serves really well, probably got um, just some really good kind of serving gifts um, and, and someone for a particular area, I guess. And we can worry about who, which elder they're connected to after that, but think about a particular area in which they could, um, they could serve. So the eldership um, will meet regularly with the deacons, um, 
and we'll disciple and grow the deacons. That's basically what's going to be happening here. So, which brings me to the last piece. The appointment of deacons. Here's how uh, it's going to roll at this, uh, at this point in time. Now, some of you go, why does he keep saying at this point in time? Because this is the best way that we see forward at the moment and we might actually get a little way into this and think that we might tweak something along the way. Okay, so we just want to be open to, to, uh, to growth and to refining these things as we go. Uh, by the end of this coming week, the, uh, the elders will um, post a deacon's position paper on the city. Okay, so that will just give you some details about what we actually think about deacons. Shortly thereafter, we'll, uh, we'll post a nomination form where you can nominate uh, someone who you think might be suitable to be a deacon. Um, nominations for deacons... Uh, will be sought from the eldership and people who are part of the project, okay? So you'll have a period of time, if there's someone that you think would be a really good person to be a deacon, you'll have a period of time that you could fill out a nomination form and, uh, and hand that in. And I will note, the first one and a half pages of the nomination form at this point in time are all the things that you need to think about before you nominate someone, okay? So it's not just a random kind of thing. I know someone who could be really good at this. We want to be really careful about this. We want to have some really well-functioning people in the right positions, okay? So toward the end of that, the first probably uh, two-thirds of the first page is um, a bunch of stuff from uh, Acts 6 and, and 1 Timothy 3, and then probably the next two-thirds of a page is um, six areas of questions that you need to ask about the person that you're thinking about. Okay, and please hear from me, all those questions aren't meant to sideline everyone, right? It's not like there's so many questions and so much criteria that no one's going to qualify. It's actually, um, I think they're very, they're very, very helpful uh, and you'll, you'll see that um, when you read the form. What will happen after that is the elders will interview uh, the nominees after that and then the nominees... Uh, whom the elders endorse will be made public to the church along with the particular area in which they'll be serving, okay? And you'll have a couple of weeks after we present their names to you to just give any feedback on that. Um, this is similar to what we did with uh, appointing some new elders in the church uh, a little while ago. We presented their names to you and you had the opportunity uh, over a period of time to go and talk to them and come and talk to the elders with any concerns that you have. And then at the end of all of that... Um, We'll, um, we'll commission them at our Sunday morning church service. So our goal at the moment is to, uh, to get a whole bunch of deacons up and running by uh, the beginning of next year. And uh, we'd like to uh, see this come into being by the end of November. Um, and the elders actually have some people that we'd like to approach. I mean, I think uh, people who are worth considering for a deacon's role, most of the time are going to be people who are doing something like that already. Um, if someone's not serving in the church at all at the moment, they're probably not the person that you want to be a deacon, all right? Because they're, they're not already taking the initiative, they're not in that role, you haven't really seen them, seen them do that. But if you have seen people operating in that kind of role, they might be a really suitable person uh, to be part of, 